we are kicking off a brand new series uh, today called Eyes Wide Open. Eyes Wide Open. And to be honest, we planned this series late last year, months ago, before all of the current events. And what seems clear to me is that this series and the heart of this series couldn't be more timely or more appropriate to the times that we're living in as the world is reeling from the events of COVID-19, the coronavirus right now. You know, in uh, recent days, I've been reminding people of a promise from the Word of God that we find in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. It's a good promise for you right now, wherever you are. It's a good promise. It says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and of a sound mind. I don't know if you've been reading the headlines or in your social media feed lately, noticing what I've been noticing is that it feels like the word fear is every second headline right now. And, uh, and in many respects, understandably so, people are responding with fear. But you know, fear is not God's way. God's not the author of fear. In fact, the, the Bible says He hasn't given us a spirit of fear. He's given us something else. If you would call yourself a follower of Jesus today, you know what? You're promised, you're promised power. That's good news right now, power for your circumstances. You're, you're promised love. He's given us love. We've received the love of God, and because we've received His love, we also have love to share with those who need it around us right now. And you're also promised a sound mind. Another translation calls it, it, calls it discipline, a disciplined mind. And I think in times like these when, you know, feels like some people around us, maybe all the world is going to pieces and wondering what to do. It's important that the church is operating in power and love and a sound mind. And to remember that his promises are yes and amen in Jesus. You know, the, the word tells us that God is our very present help in time of need. In other words, God's not far away right now. If you feel right now that you're walking through a time of need, stand on that promise. God is our very present help in time of need. Jesus is still on mission. In fact, he's, he's joined us, commissioned us with him to seek and to save that which was lost. It was the mission of Christ. And I want to be clear, you know, God's not the author of these circumstances. God, is, God didn't send a pandemic. You know, unfortunately, insurance companies often call these things acts of God. And I think it couldn't be further from the truth. But, you know, I also have no doubt that moments like these, when it feels like all the world is being gripped by these events, there is an opportunity for the gospel, though God is not the author of a pandemic. I tell you, I do believe in moments like these, there's an opportunity for the gospel that in times of uncertainty, you and I can determine to be the church, even if we can't quote unquote go to church, whatever that means to you right now, we can be the church. It's fascinating to me that in the midst of all of these world events, we had record attendance across Liberty Church through what you're experiencing right now, Liberty Church online last week. Some of our friends at Life Church, a church in the US, recorded 15,000 individual decisions to follow Jesus last week and alone. As the gospel uh, went out into all the earth as we determined to be the church. I believe, you know, perhaps there's never been an easier time to invite your friends to church than right now when joining a service and coming to church can be dialing in online and we might even be on time for once. Wouldn't that be a miracle? <laughs> the truth is, church, we shouldn't underestimate the power and we shouldn't under underestimate the potential of this medium and of this moment for the gospel. 
Because let's remember, and this is important, let's remember, the church is a people, not a place. The church is a body, not a building. And the church is a movement, not a monument. And it's good for us to be reminded that in times like these, while events are changing and swirling all around us, we still have every opportunity to be a people, to be the body of Christ and to be a movement. Even in quarantine, we can do all of these things. You know, late last year, I believe, the Lord started to speak to me about this year, the year 2020, and gave me a promise, kind of a declaration over the year that 2020 was to be the year of harvest, the year of harvest. In fact, I recently preached a, a message just simply called Harvest, all about this promise. And God is all about people. And the key story of that message was an interaction that Jesus has with a woman at a well. And in this interaction, you know, Jesus has this incredible opportunity to reveal who he is. And, and through the course of the conversation, the disciples had been hungry and weary, and they went away to get food and after some time, they come back. But in the meantime, what they've missed is this engagement where Jesus talked about living water. He's talked about worshiping. He's, he's revealed part of his nature to this woman that he, in fact, I am he, the Messiah. And she runs into the town and tell everybody that she's found the one that they've been waiting for, the Savior, the Lord that waited on in generations. But the disciples return at that moment. And it's kind of hard to watch. It's found in John chapter 4 because the disciples miss everything that Jesus is doing, the work that he's doing in that moment. I don't know why they miss the moment. Maybe they miss the moment because she was a Samaritan. We're going to talk about Samaritans a little later in the message today. But this was a people group that lived adjacent to the Jews, but the Jewish people really looked down on the Samaritans. Maybe that's why they missed it. Or, or maybe they missed what Jesus was doing just because she was a woman. And that day and in that culture, they didn't value women in the same way as perhaps we should and can today. And we, you know, in that moment, I wonder what was it the disciples were thinking? What was it that they missed about that moment? Was it that she was a Samaritan? Was it that she was a woman? Or was it just simply that they were hungry? And they went and got food and, and Jesus challenges them with this scripture. He says in John chapter 4 verse 35, and this is where really the whole idea of this series comes from. Jesus says to them, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. Don't we often think that way, like harvest, breakthrough, change, the promises of God are always out there somewhere. He said, Is, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. He says, listen, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ripe for a harvest. They are ripe for harvest, Jesus says. He says, open your eyes. Now, this whole series, as we lead up to the Easter weekend and Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, this whole series is really an urgent cry to the people of God to live with our eyes wide open, to open our eyes. Another translation says, lift up your eyes to the times that we're living in. And each one of the messages in this series is really going to speak to ways in which Jesus saw people and saw the world around him different than, than how we so easily do, how he saw the hurting, how he saw the broken or the forgotten or the so-called outsiders of his day. Jesus saw differently in, and I want to learn to see, I hope you do too, I want to learn to see as Jesus saw and live my life with my eyes wide open. Are we going to be encouraged through this series, equipped through this series to respond with love, respond with grace, respond with compassion, knowing that we're bringing his kingdom come. 
Now, the title of this first message in the series is simply called, Who is My Neighbor? Who is my neighbor? It's taken from a passage we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 10. Another unlikely hero, and as it happens, actually another Samaritan. And while it seems that others in the story were prejudiced perhaps, or too busy for sure, or preoccupied, or maybe a little judgmental, that caused them to not see a man as he was in desperate need and respond with compassion. The, the good Samaritan, as he would come to be known all these years later, teaches us to see with eyes of compassion what it means to truly love our neighbor. You know, to me, this story is so potent. It's so powerful. And one of the ways I know that to be true is that this story has transcended church circles. This is a story that many people in our day, in our generation, even if they wouldn't call themselves a follower of Christ, most people know the story or the essence of the idea of being a good Samaritan. It's a powerful story. But I hope today as we look at this and we determine to live with eyes wide open, it would challenge us in fresh ways. I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 29. It says this. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. By the way, I think it's important to point out that the Bible tells us a little bit about the man that Jesus has this encounter with and that his motive, his intention was to test Jesus. Teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. That's a powerful question. What do I have to do to receive eternal life, he says. What is written in the law, Jesus replied, and how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you'll live. Now the conversation could have finished there, but it didn't. The gentleman who intended to test Jesus, sneaks in one more question. <laughs> and he says this. It says, verse 29, it says, but he wanted to justify himself. You ever felt that way? He wanted to justify himself. Maybe he's trying to justify his choices or his shortcomings or his actions. I don't know, but he, he tried to justify himself with this question. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Because he said, you know, the, the whole thing is to Love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus basically says to paraphrase, well done, do this and you'll live. But when he goes to justify himself, he asks a follow-up question, who is my neighbor? It's funny, it's a little reminiscent to me of an Old Testament story. Actually, the first recorded murder in the Bible is between two brothers, Cain and Abel. And Cain in his anger murders his brother Abel and and the Lord says to Cain, where's your brother? And, and kind of with this same sort of spirit, it seems to me, Cain's retort, his response is, am I my brother's keeper? It seems to me that there's something of that in this question here. Who is, who is my neighbor? And I would argue that a couple of thousand years later, this is still a very relevant question, maybe more relevant than ever. But it seems like the spirit of him asking the question was, maybe he was hoping for some parameters. Like, yeah, 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 love my neighbor, but I mean, who is my neighbor anyway? You know, it isn't written here explicitly, but it seems like he's hoping out maybe to figure out who he doesn't have to care for, who he's given some sort of permission. Does he have 
uh, an out with, with loving these people or accepting these people or having the grace towards these people, expressing compassion and empathy for others. You know, we live in a in a slightly unique day in some respects. Our generation, thanks to technology, we can have connection to people all over the world at the, literally at the tip of our fingers. You know, we can follow somebody on Instagram or friend somebody on Facebook and we can have glimpses of their life, of, even of their thoughts. We can have photos of their day. We can even perhaps follow along on their faith journey if they have one. And yet, that can all be true for a person that I might actually never meet in real life. So who's my neighbor? It's a relevant question for us today. Because even in Jesus' day, before technology sort of, so to speak, shrank the world even further, Jesus, it seems to me in the story he's about to tell, is stretching people's definition of who their neighbor was. I don't know what the man was hoping for. Is the narrowest definition of the neighbor literally just the person who physically lives next door to you? Or, or, or are you talking about my neighborhood, Jesus, like the people who live around me, like help me define this? But then Jesus tells this story that I'm about to read that makes it clear that the neighbor could be someone who lives somewhere else entirely, as the Samaritan was. It could be someone who lives somewhere that I have never been since in all likelihood, the Jewish teacher had never even been to Samaria, where this Samaritan man was from. Seems to me from Jesus' story that my neighbor could be someone unlike me. It could even be someone that I don't agree with that could be my neighbor. You know, often you and I in our humanity, we're struggling to make sense of what's happening all around us and heartbreak and hurt and need and Maybe all of that brokenness feels overwhelming sometimes. And so we try maybe like the teacher to justify ourselves, to narrow the scope. I mean, who is my neighbor anyway? And maybe in the process, because we can feel a little overwhelmed ourselves perhaps of stresses and needs and logistics and such. And, and in the process, we can so easily discount that we can even make a difference or, or that our resources could even really help anyone. We could dis discredit our own ability to do our part and if we're honest, and we go even a little layer deeper than all those practicalities and logistics, maybe on a heart level too, if we're honest, maybe our prejudices and maybe even our judgments play a role in our willingness to help and identify our neighbor. And then you add to all of that as if that's not enough, you layer into all of that COVID-19, the coronavirus, and maybe now our inclination to kind of ignore people and shut out the world and just focus on myself and take care of me and mine could be amplified even more if we aren't mindful. Now, the truth is, we can be good citizens and practice social distancing and flatten the curve of the virus and protect the vulnerable as we can and should and still be kind. <laughs> we can still be compassionate. We can still express empathy. We can still be the hands and feet of Jesus for our neighbor. It was heartbreaking for me to watch the news in recent days and weeks and see, at least in, in my nation where I live here in the USC, people hoarding groceries, emptying out the shelves at the store out of maybe fear, maybe in some cases just selfishness, but even worse in some cases. People were, were you know, literally profiteering off the times that we're living in, hoarding garages full of antibacterial products in the hope that they'd run out on the shelves and they could make a profit off people in their time of need. What have we come to? 
Who is my neighbor? This is a time for us to serve. This is a time for us to love, to stand in the gap for the hurting or the vulnerable or the disadvantaged, not to be taking advantage of them. James 1.27 says this, the religion, religion that, our, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It's good for us to be reminded that's the Father's heart for us, that we would extend His compassion, extend His love and His generosity to others. Who is my neighbor? You know, you can tell by what's left of my Australian accent that I didn't grow up in New York City. And uh, so growing up in Australia, I didn't have a fixture in my childhood like generations of American kids have had, and that is uh, Mr. Rogers. If you're not familiar, perhaps you're watching from other places around the world or one of our other Liberty communities in London or Manzini, but Mr. Rogers was a a Presbyterian minister and a TV host, I mean, for decades he hosted a show and he'd often say, he was famous for saying, hello neighbor, but I, I love this quote of his that seems appropriate for today. He said, all of us at some time or other need help. Whether we're giving or receiving help, each one of us has something valuable to bring to this world. And that's one of the things that connects us as neighbors. In our own way, each of us is a giver and a receiver. So, you know, back in Luke 10 and the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus responds to that question, who is my neighbor with this now famous story? He says this, verse 30, it says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But as a, a Samaritan, as he traveled and came to, the, to where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, wounds pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, two coins, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Jesus asks. And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told them, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. The moral of the story, Jesus says, mercy. Mercy, love, grace, compassion. This is the mission. This is what it is in the terms of Christ to be neighborly. And he commissions the man and us by extension, go and do likewise. You see, the hero of this story is kind of surprisingly a Samaritan for their day. This man in Jesus' time, as he tells this story, was part of a culture, a people group that the Jewish people looked down on. They considered them kind of unholy, an unclean, mixed race of Jews, and, and, and they wouldn't even see fit to pass through Samaria. 
But then in the story, he's the one that does the thing that the priest and the Levite should have done. So the Samaritans' actions clearly speak to Jesus' question, who is my neighbor? You know, to be honest, for a first century Jewish listener, just the very notion that the Samaritan would be the one to do the right thing was kind of a bitter pill for them to swallow. And even worse, that in the story, a Levite, you know, somebody from the tribe responsible for caring for the temple and other things, and then, and then even a priest would pass by and not do the right thing. And then to add final insult to injury, that the story would become known as the good Samaritan and be told for thousands of years, he's an unlikely hero, and I love that. Seems to me that my neighbor is anyone with a need that I have an opportunity to meet. Whatever that need, emotional, practical, relational, I don't know what, maybe they need encouragement. If, they, if I have a resource and an ability to meet a need, that's an opportunity for me to be a neighbor. For the man in the story, he was left for dead. The Samaritan made a difference. I mean, literally the difference. His actions actually saved the man's life. And you know, when we choose to see our neighbor, when we choose to respond like the Samaritan, it does. It makes a difference. It makes all the difference. It can change the future. It brings the kingdom here on earth. One of my favorite recent stories was uh, that in one of our Liberty communities, they threw a birthday party recently for a much-loved gentleman who's part of our church community who's been experiencing long-term homelessness and they celebrated him, pulled out all the stops, threw a party, blessed him, loved him, and so they should. He's loved. He is seen by God, and he needs to be seen by his church family too. And in that moment, for me, what rang out about that was I was reminded of an Andy Stanley quote, a preacher here in the, the U.S. who often says, do for the one what you wish you could do for the many. And isn't that the challenge? So often we don't do something for one person because we think, well, I can't do it for everyone. But if enough of us would do enough things for the one, then it might be true that I can't help everyone. But perhaps if we all helped, we between us could. So in the time I have left, I want to just give you some thoughts, some lessons. Lessons in loving our neighbor from the Good Samaritan. The first lesson I learned from this story that Jesus told is that loving our neighbor, loving our neighbor begins by seeing differently. Verse 31, I'll read it again, said a priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man and passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side. So part of what we have to come to terms with is not that they didn't see. No, the Levite saw and the priest saw too, but they passed by, they crossed the road, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. So all three of them saw the man, but two passed by on the other side. I, I think if we're going to live as people with eyes wide open to the harvest around us, eyes wide open to the needs of humanity, in a sense, if you understand what I'm saying, we need to go from seeing people to seeing people. Seems to me that the Samaritans saw people differently, saw this situation differently. I want to have those eyes. I want that to be me. You know, in my own way, I've been kind of practicing a mindfulness as I go about my everyday life. And 
Each of you watching are watching from different cities and different contexts, but every city has a context. For me, as a Brooklyn resident in New York City, that means to see the crossing guards at my kids' school, Michael and Maddie. Maddie retired just recently. Michael, we preached the story over the years, literally saved one of our son's lives back in the day when he nearly ran out into the traffic. But do I see them? Like really see them? Well, the subway staff, you know, in New York, the subway booths where they sell the tickets, they're like in almost like a little glass cage. And I've just made it a practice to smile and to wave when I walk by. I want to I see people. I'm amazed at the reactions I get when I sit in a busy coffee shop or I get into a taxi and I just ask this simple question, how's your day? <laughs> it's amazing to me that people are like, I've never been asked that question before almost. So the, the, it's almost as if we, we see people, we don't see people. You know, in New York City, I feel like you could get a presidential medal if you see a mother with a few kids in a stroller trying to get up or down a staircase and you say, can I help? It's like nobody's ever thought to offer before. You know, whatever city you live in, you're surrounded by opportunity to truly see people every day. And the same verse, verse 33, in a different translation called the New Living Translation, gives us a little more shade of meaning where, where it, says, it says, then a despised Samaritan came along. It speaks to the cultural tension here. A despised Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. You know, the NIV called it pity. The New Living calls it compassion. You know, we need to be people that feel compassion, that feel for those who are around us. 1 John 3.17 says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, has no compassion, you could say, for them, how can the love of God be in that person? What a challenge that is. Do I see need? Or do I see? Do I see people allow myself to be moved with compassion? Number two, second lesson we can learn is that true compassion leads to action. It leads to action. Verse 34, four words. He went to him. It's as simple as that. See, true compassion leads to action. The Bible says that, that when the man saw, when he truly saw him, he went to him, bandaged his wounds and so on. I wonder if we're willing to go just even a few steps out of our way. It can be simple too. Sometimes it's not rocket science. It's not anything elaborate or even revolutionary or innovative. For me, one of my simple things right now is I call our old neighbor Joey every week. He's in his 80s. He's had some health challenges and he lives alone right now. And one simple thing I can do just to go a few steps out of my way it's just to call Joey and a check-in and a chat, look for little ways to bless him and offer to serve him. It's simple. You know, I, I read a book years ago. It's kind of a business classic now, a book called The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. It's not a, it's not a faith book in that sense, but it actually contains an interesting parallel to what we're speaking about today because in the book, Malcolm Gladwell in The Tipping Point references a study done by Princeton University. Now, Princeton was interested in the power of this story, the Good Samaritan. So they sort of set up a, a kind of a social experiment, if you like, where some seminary students, Bible college students, were told that they were going to be speaking a lecture on this story, on the Good Samaritan on the other side of campus. They were given some time to prepare. And then they were sent across campus, but what the students didn't know 
was it was a social experiment where they had set up that between the place where they got their instructions and where they were going to deliver a speech on the Good Samaritan, there was an actor laying on the footpath on the sidewalk, obviously in pain, rolling on the ground in distress. And so the test was, while on their way to speak about the Good Samaritan, would they stop and take an opportunity to practice what they preached? Well, Dali and Batson, who, who, wrote on the, who wrote the study, said, it's hard to think of a context in which norms concerning helping those in distress are more salient, more relevant than for a person thinking about the Good Samaritan. And yet, it did not significantly increase helping behavior. Indeed, and this is heartbreaking, on several occasions, a seminary student going to give his talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan literally stepped over the victim as he hurried on his way. Now, of course, we can laugh and sort of point the finger and judge, but how many times is that us? I mean, it's a tragedy to think that these seminary students were on their way to speak about the Good Samaritan, had an opportunity to practice it and missed their chance. The point here is compassion needs to lead us to action. It's not just a theory, an idea. It's not just a message. It needs to lead us to action. In fact, I would question, is it really compassion if we don't actually do anything? Matthew 5.14, Jesus says, you are, the, you are the light of the world. A town on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See what? Your good deeds. Hey, compassion has to lead us to action. And if it does, who are they going to glorify? Not you and I, but our Father in heaven. Amen. Number three, third lesson in who is my neighbor is that helping can get messy. Helping can get messy. Verse 34, it says, he went to him. We talked about that, but listen. And he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. I have to admit, as I read this this week, it struck me for the first time that I'm really glad that roadside medicine has come a long way. As I was reading that this week, I thought, really? He poured on oil and wine. This seems like, I don't know if that was like a first century strategy that we've let go of. I'm glad that we have. At the very least, it's messy. We got wounds, blood, dirt. Now we have oil and wine. This is the healthcare strategy on the side of the road here. It's messy. But he doesn't just send for help. He doesn't just say, oh, I don't do well with blood, or this is a lot right now. Or... He jumps in, he gets involved, he tends to his wounds. There's a literal, physical mess, and he helps anyway. But there's another kind of mess that's going on here. Because remember, we're talking about a Samaritan and a Jew. In other words, there's also a moment of racial reconciliation. Reconciliation in our world can get messy too, right? We don't know. We don't know the backstory for this man, how the Jewish people had perhaps treated him or his family over the years, but, but the truth is we know it can get messy helping people, right? And we do it anyway. People who are different than you, who look different than you, who believe differently than you. People maybe of a different gender or a different generation or a different culture or people who vote differently than you. You know, in the times that we're living in, you know, 
In the US, it's oftentimes red and blue, Republican and Democrat. In the UK, perhaps it's Brexit and Leavers and Remainers, but it doesn't matter where you're listening from around the world. Each one of these things are opportunity for us to take an off-ramp and say, this is too messy for me and you're different than me. I think differently than you, but everyone is an opportunity still to redefine who is my neighbor. Number four, loving your neighbor will cost you something. It'll cost you something. Mother Teresa said, following Jesus is simple, but not easy. Love until it hurts, and then love more. That's what the Samaritan did. He said in verse 34 that he put him on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. So there's inconvenience here. For one thing, it cost him time. No doubt this whole trip to the inn and roadside first century medical assistance, all of this is a detour. It's not on his schedule. It wasn't in his plan for the day, but he makes the detour. You know what's interesting about that Princeton study that I mentioned before? Is what made the difference where those seminary students speak on the Good Samaritan would stop? You know, it didn't make any difference why they were getting into the ministry. They thought the, th- the theory was that if people had gotten into the ministry, were studying the Bible because they really cared about people, they'd be more likely to stop. And that didn't change it at all. It didn't matter whether they were speaking on the Good Samaritan or something else. That made no difference at all. You know what made the difference? Is whether they thought they were in a hurry. The only thing that changed statistically the likelihood that these students would stop was the last thing that they said to them. One group were told, hey, you still got some time. You'll probably be a little bit early, but you might as well head over. That group, 67% of them would stop and tend to the actor along the way and practice what they were about to preach. But the students who were told, oh, you're running late. You better hurry. It's okay. They'll wait for you. Only 10% of them would wait. Only 10% of them would stop. Only 10% of them would express the very thing that they were about to speak to. You know, for me, that speaks to the tyranny of hurry and urgency in our life. Are we willing for it to cost us a little time? Are we willing for it to cost a little money? It clearly did that for the Good Samaritan. But the the Bible promises in Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. It's going to cost us something. But you know, even this week, we could practice this message. Even this week, we could say, Holy Spirit, Give me eyes to see. Help me live with eyes wide open to those in the world around me. Even this week, we could determine I'm going to practice a messy, inconvenient, kind of costly faith, an act of kindness, an act of caring. Reach out to somebody and know that that can be fueled by a deep faith, that those actions reveal the love of Christ and make a difference. Come on, as the team come join me, one more thought before I pray. The fifth and final lesson from the story of the Good Samaritan, how his love, his expression of love could shape ours, is we can love our neighbor because Jesus loved us as his. See, Jesus went first. That's the whole point. Jesus went first. He loved us. We were, in that sense, his neighbor. And he did everything that the Good Samaritan did and more to go out of his way and to come to really see us, care for us. You know, Charles Spurgeon famously said, as soon as a man has found Christ, he begins to find others. That's the way it's supposed to work. As we discover, I've been found. 
that Jesus, the Savior, the Lord, the King, came down from heaven to earth, paid the price for my sins that I could be called a son, a daughter of the most high living God. Jesus went first. We can love our neighbor because Jesus loved us first. In fact, he commands us to in John 13, 34, it says, a new command, I give you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. It's a command, isn't it? Love one another. How? As I have loved you, love one another. It strikes me that the command is plain, church. That loving is the mission for all of us all the time. Strikes me that it's not optional. It strikes me that it's not seasonal. Strikes me that the Bible doesn't give us an out here like it's a personality type or an Enneagram profile (laughs) or a spiritual gift. Jesus commands us all. Love one another. And then he tells us what he wants that to look like. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. How did he love us? Well, he loved us willingly, right? How did he love us? He loved us unconditionally. How did Jesus love us? Well, he, lived, he loved us sacrificially. And we're called to go and do the same.